And we'll thank you to Seth and the team. Beautiful job as always. Man, it's really awesome to see Seth and his wife leading and then Aaron and his wife leading as well. Um, what a beautiful reminder of our call to worship together the Lord, even through the gift of marriage. Uh, so thank you for that time. Hey, I want to thank everyone for being here this morning. For those that may not know me, my name is Brandon Reed, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here with Christ Covenant Fellowship. For those who don't know, our lead pastor, Pastor Tyler, is actually out of town this week. Uh, he and his wife, Sasha, have gone to a marriage conference. Um, so if you would, as they travel back today, would, would you be praying for them that uh, God would protect them as they're on the road, but also be praying that this was a time that served them well, a time that they're rejuvenated, that they're strengthened in their marriage even more so than usual as they uh, continue to invest in the life here uh, of this body of believers. We are certainly thankful for all that they do uh, here with us. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to Amos chapter 5. <clears throat> Amos chapter 5. This morning, uh, we will be looking at verses 16 through 27. Amos 5, 16 through 27. If you're new to the Bible, that's okay. I'll give you a second to get there. It's in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. As we've said before, not minor in its message, just minor in length. Amos 5. Verses 16 through 27. So what I want to do is just read these verses, and then I'm going to pray and ask God for his assistance during this time. So let us read. I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, and it reads, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing, those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath your king and Kion your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is once again that I come before you humbly, God, asking 
you to intervene during our time this morning, for I have an incredible task before me to preach the Word of God, something I could never do. I could never preach to the glory that you deserve. So, Lord, I ask that you would assist me, you would lead me during this time. Help us to open these texts together. Help me to teach from them, to uh, challenge from them, but also to find encouragement here in these verses. God, and that through it all, you would be glorified. Help me to speak courageously, boldly, passionately, yet humbly and lovingly as well for your glory and for the good of your people. And it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So there's an old saying that goes, you can't get there from here. And this is said to have originated up north. It is believed uh, that it most likely started in the state of Maine some years ago. So what would happen is people would visit these rural areas, these uh, smaller cities, and they would stop and they would ask the residents for directions. And the locals would, with, would respond with, well, you can't get there from here. So in other words, you're so far off the beaten path, you're so far from where you're supposed to be that you can't even get to your de desired destination from here. Now, there is indeed a way to get where you want to go. You just can't get there this way. See, as we study these texts before us this morning, we're going to find that that's true of God's people, the nation of Israel. They had lost their way. You see, they claimed to be seeking God through their worship, through their acts of piety, and they may have even had this desire to seek God, to meet with him through their assemblies and their festivals and their celebrations and their songs. However, God had and he still has a specific design for worship. God's word clearly tells us the ways in which we are to approach him. Listen, brothers and sisters, if that reality is lost on you this morning, simply read through the book of Leviticus. It will tell you how serious and how intentional God is about the way that he is worshipped. And so we talked about this a little bit last week, but because God is a holy and righteous God, he has a particular standard. He has a certain level of expectation for his people. And the reality is this, that God is rigid. He is strict in how we must come before him. If we are to approach God, it must be his way. You see, as God, he has the right to dictate what is acceptable worship. And as God, he should not and he must not compromise or bend on those expectations. But unfortunately for the nation of Israel, they were Again, worshiping God their own way. They were seeking him their way at their particular places of worship. But they were not seeking God according to what he demands. See, the nation of Israel in their sin and rebellion were attempting to approach God in the way that they pleased, in the way that they desired, what they wanted, not what God required. And it wasn't even necessarily, and we're going to get to this in a little bit, wasn't even necessarily their practices. It wasn't necessarily anything that they did within their time of worship that was offensive to God. It was more so the heart behind their worship or the lack thereof. See, there was an inconsistency between their worship and their lifestyle. 
See, there was a disconnect between God and his people. See, they had a distorted understanding of what worship requires. So because of this, the offerings that they brought to God, rather than pleasing him, they actually provoked him. The nation of Israel was not walking in step with their Lord. They failed to realize the heart of worship, that what God demands isn't rituals or traditions. See, at the heart of worshiping God should be a delight in him demonstrated by genuine and humble obedience. Right? We cannot separate worship from obedience. If you don't hear anything else that I say today, please hear that. Worship and obedience are inextricably linked. Amen? Amen. Okay, a couple of you are with me. All right, we're going to get there. All right, listen, as we study these texts this morning, what we will find is God's judgment rightly aimed at his people for their disobedience and their continued unrepentant sin. And the truth is no amount of assemblies, no amount of songs, prayers, offerings, sacrifices, none of that was going to deter God's wrath because what he required wasn't ritual, it was obedience. We must remember that in our worship, it must be done God's way. So this morning, from looking at these verses, what I want to do is just make five simple points. I want to have a look at five observations as we walk through these verses this morning. All right, so observation number one is this. God's judgment brings lament and anguish. And we see that in verses 16 And 17, this is what it says. I'll read them briefly. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing. In all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Now, if we look at verse 16 here, it begins with the word therefore. Anytime we see the word therefore, we understand that there is a link between the previous verses and the verses that follow. So we have to ask ourselves, what's the correlation here? What is the link, the connection between these two passages? Well, if you were here last week, we studied the first half of Amos chapter 5, and what we found was God was rebuking his people for the sin of injustice, specifically for the corruption of their court system and the continued oppression of the poor. But even amidst this rebuke, even amidst this pronouncement of judgment, God invites his people to repent, to turn to him, and to be saved. And as we close that section, we saw that God was challenging his people to love good and to hate evil so that he could spare a remnant of the house of Joseph. However, the nation of Israel had long been a rebellious and stiff-necked people. Now, although there wouldn't be a corporate repentance, God tells us here there certainly would be corporate lament. There would be widespread sorrow and anguish amongst God's people. The Lord says in all the squares and all the streets and all the vineyards. See, these verses paint a devastating picture of one of universal mourning and sorrow amongst the nation of Israel that would be grieving for what is about to befall the people. See, the death and defeat of Israel will be on such a catastrophic level that the only response is wailing and anguish and sorrow 
that the streets would be filled with those grieving and mourning the calamities that are about to inflict upon them. You see, this paints a picture of complete and utter agony all across the nation. This misery, this anguish would be felt by all the people, regardless of whether you're a farmer, a businessman, a carpenter, a priest, whatever. Listen, that even encompasses those that would be spared. They will be wailing for those that are not. There will be sorrow and suffering for the judgment of God is coming upon his people. And so what God tells them here is he even instructs them to go so far as to call on those that are skilled in lamentation. So if you're not sure what that means, and this is in reference to the Jewish custom at the time, where they would hire people to wail, to lament, to mourn for certain instances, for certain occasions, certain circumstances. They would actually pay people to come and cry and mourn at funerals, to weep over their loved ones. They had people that were professional mourners. So what God is telling them here is, yeah, call those who are skilled in lamentation, because guess what? You're going to need them. You're going to need them for what's about to transpire. So we have to ask ourselves, what is it that's about to transpire? What is the purpose behind all the wailing and lament? Let's look at verse 17. And it says this, And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. So the wailing and the agony and the suffering is in response to Creator God passing through their midst. See, they had fallen into the hands of Almighty God, and He wasn't coming to bring blessings, only judgment and punishment. I want you to look at verse 17 again and notice the words that God uses here. God says, I will pass through your midst. Focus on the words, I will. See, last week we saw that God's judgment was permanent. We also saw that God is this unquenchable fire, that his judgment is unstoppable. Here we see that God's judgment is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. He says, I will pass through your midst. You see, if God sovereignly declares something, it shall come to pass because God in his divine nature is unchanging. He's uncompromising. If he says, I am going to do something, then you can take it to the bank. You can bank on it. It will happen. God says, I will do this so it will come to pass. Verses like Ezekiel 12, 28 says this, Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, None of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be performed, declares the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed. That means it's unchanging. What he declares will happen. Or Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God proves true. Proves true. You don't have to wonder whether or not what God decrees will actually take place. See, God's word is true. It is tested. It is solidified. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that this morning? If so, live as one who believes God's word. Live as one who has laid hold to the promises of God's steadfast love and his faithfulness and redemption. But also live as one who understands that God's word teaches that he is a righteous and all-powerful and almighty God. 
See, God's word is true, and what he says he will do, he will indeed do. You see, unfortunately for Israel, that was a terrifying reality because God had declared in his divine judgment that he will visit his people. He will pass through their midst. The Lord has promised to visit Israel for their iniquities, and the only action left was to wail and lament. You see here the prophet Amos was warning them that their time had come, and it was time for them to meet their maker. And man, what a terrifying reality that is, to fall under the just judgment of God, to be totally at his mercy. You see, God had promised to pass through their midst, but brothers and sisters, this is a sobering reminder to us that God's presence among sinners is devastating, but it is especially devastating for sinners that refuse to repent. For those that refuse to repent, God's presence is a terror. And that leads us to point number two. For the unrepentant, the Lord's day brings terror, not joy. Make sure you get that. For the unrepentant, the Lord's day brings terror, not joy. You see, in verses 18 through 20, God uses his prophet Amos to remind Israel that their future is one of darkness, not light. It's not one of prosperity or rejoicing or salvation. It is a day for them to dread and to doom. It's doom. It's it's terrifying when God comes amongst them. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. It says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and he leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness in it? Now, these verses essentially have a central focus, and that's the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. And again, we see this language of lament carry over here where it says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. That word woe brings with it a feeling of torment and distress and anguish. This is a warning to the nation of Israel. The prophet is questioning their motives. He's questioning their thinking here. He's saying, why would you have the day of the Lord? Why do you desire that? Why would you want the Lord to come and visit you? So that phrase, day of the Lord, it appears frequently in the Old Testament. In fact, we see it used 18 times amongst the prophetic literature. We see it used in Isaiah, Joel, Zephaniah, here in Amos, and other places. So we're right to assume that the phrase, day of the Lord, would have been a phrase that these Israelites were familiar with. This would have been a concept that was familiar to Amos' audience. But what is meant by the day of the Lord? What does this actually mean? What is this referring to? I think most commentators agree that this has some sort of eschatological understanding in view here. So if you're not familiar with eschatology, it's just the end days, right? God coming, right, and intervening, so to speak, in the world's affairs. And he brings redemption and restoration for his people, but he also brings his final judgment upon the world. So this is what they're waiting for here. So Amos says, why do you want that? Why are you waiting for that? See, the Israelites were expecting God to come on that day and bring salvation and prosperity and power to the nation. 
However, here the Lord says, woe to you who desire that day. Why would you have that day? See, the Israelites assumed something about the day of the Lord that simply was not true. They had assumed a certain level of comfort and security. They believed that that day would bring joy and rejoicing, but God tells them something very different here. He gives them a different reality. There'll be a different outcome. It'll be contrary to what they've expected and what they've waited for all this time. God says the day of the Lord will bring darkness, not light. There is no brightness in it. I want to read these verses again. I know it's heavy. I know it's a lot. I just, I want to read these again. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and he leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Listen to what the Lord is saying here. That is not a favorable depiction of the coming of the Lord. This is not a forecast that evokes feelings of delight and rejoicing. I mean, just look at the analogy and the illustration that is used here. The day of the Lord is compared to fleeing from a lion only to be mauled by a bear. Or somehow you manage to flee from both lion and bear and you enter into your home where you find a moment of respite and you've assumed that you're safe only to be struck by a viper. This is a picture of God's certain, swift, and inescapable judgment. See, Israel was the individual in the house that was leaning against the wall that had a false sense of security. See, Israel rested on these past deliverances as a promise to future protection, future security, but they couldn't bank on that. See, these verses are very unsettling. The people believed that the worst was behind them, that any calamity and judgment had already passed. But just as they thought they had escaped the worst, see, Israel would face the fiercest and final judgment, God Almighty himself. See, Israel stood be condemned before the Lord because of her unrepentant and continued sin. So it was foolish and naive for the people to desire the day of the Lord and believe that it would bring anything other than devastation. Friends, the presence of the Lord is a terrifying reality to sinful humanity. To stand before the judgment of this holy creator God, the ruler of the universe, and the Bible is clear that God in his holiness and his might and his splendor is to be feared. His presence is overwhelming. It's all-consuming. It is devastating. I want you to think back to Isaiah 6. He's in the throne room of the Lord, and he's just overwhelmed in the presence of God. He's undone. Or if you think about the encounter with the disciples where they're in the boat, and there's this storm that arises, and they're terrified of this storm. And so they go to Jesus and they wake him up. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes the wind and the wave. And then the text tells us they're even more terrified because of who they're in the boat with. Almighty God, veiled in flesh. Jesus' glory was even veiled. And still in his presence, they're terrified. This man controls the winds and the waves. Who are we in this boat with? That is a picture of God's overwhelming presence. 
And it is a terror to sinful humanity, but specifically to sinners who refuse to repent. Brothers and sisters, God is coming to judge the world. That is a certainty. In fact, John chapter 5 tells us that it is Christ who will come in judgment. This is what Jesus says in John 5.22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And in Matthew chapter, chapter 7, Jesus says this, On the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, it is Christ who judges. Man, how I grieve thinking of the fate of the lost on that day. Listen, there's, here's the reality. There's only two outcomes. On your day of judgment, there's only two outcomes. Either you stand before the Lord and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. I have, you've been faithful over few things. Now I'll make you ruler over many. Or he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Here's the reality. If he tells you to depart, you're not going to get in your car and go back home. You're not going to go to the park. You're not going to go to Robin Alexander's and have lunch. Depart from me, I never knew. Your reality is eternal anguish and suffering separated from God for eternity. It's only one of two outcomes on the day of the Lord. That day is a complete and utter terror to those that are not found in Christ. Unless Jesus stands in your place, unless you are clothed in his righteousness, that day brings doom to those who are otherwise dead in their sins. For those outside of Christ, it is darkness, it is gloom, it is not light, it is not rejoicing, it is a terror. So here's the question we must ask ourselves. Is that me? Am I an enemy of God? On that day, will I be found on the wrong side of his justice? Am I assuming security in Christ that isn't actually my reality? And there are so many that are eagerly anticipating the day of the Lord. They're eagerly anticipating Christ's return. I hear people say it all the time, especially as we look at our world and things are just so out of whack. And you hear people say, oh man, the Lord's coming back. He'll be back soon. It's like, yeah, he is. Are you ready? Are you ready? Because any man or woman that's not in Christ will fall under the just judgment of God. There are so many that presume on that day that it'll be a day of rejoicing and they'll be redeemed and ushered into the kingdom, but that's simply not true unless you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Other than that, that day is a terror. It's trepidation. It's fear. It is frightening. So ask yourselves, ourselves, I should say, because that's a question I must wrestle with too. I'm not preaching to just you. These texts preach to me as well. We must ask ourselves, have I been born again? Have I repented of my sins and trusted in Christ Jesus alone? Brothers and sisters, this is something we must be sure of. We must get this right. This is of eternal significance. 
You see, the lion that is pursuing in judgment is almighty God, and you can't outrun him, you can't flee from him, you cannot hide from his judgment. Now, you may have escaped suffering and calamity on this side of eternity, but that terror, that judgment, that all-consuming God awaits every individual that is not found in Christ Jesus. Listen, as we move forward to verses 21 through 23, that is a reminder for us here as we look at point number three. We are reminded that the folly of God's people was they had created this false sense of security, right? The nation of Israel had a false belief that they were safe because of their worship, because of their practices, because of their religion, because of their past history with God. They assumed that they were safe. And that leads us to point number three, God despises false worship. God despises false worship. Verses 21 and 23, and these sting. These are tough. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. This is yet another emphatic and shocking rebuke of God's people. You see, these words should cut them to the core. But again, they are a stiff-necked people. See, since the birth of this nation from the beginning when God had called this people into a covenant relationship with him, they knew what the Lord demanded. They knew he demanded obedience and holiness. They completely understood that Yahweh, the God of Israel, had expectations for his people and the way that they worshiped him. I mean, when you read the Old Testament, immediately following the book of Exodus is the book of Leviticus. So God takes them out of Egypt. He rescues them from slavery and captivity. He carries them through the wilderness, and he eventually or immediately gives them this book of what to do, what I am expecting of my people, how to worship me, and how to live. It's no coincidence that the book of Leviticus, I'll get it right, follows the book of Exodus. Here's a book where I rescue my people. I bring them into covenant relationship with myself. Now here is how you live. Here is what I'm calling you to do. There's no coincidence there. So the nation of Israel knew exactly what God expected. And for them, they had continued to practice the rituals found in the book of Leviticus, right? It had uh, instructions or laws on grain offerings, sin offerings, laws of purification and cleansing, how to offer sacrifices, instructions for particular feasts, festivals and celebrations, etc., etc., etc. God covers an exhaustive list. This is what you do to worship me. And by all accounts, Israel had continued to do a lot of those things. They had offered their ritual worship to God. They continued the tradition of certain feasts that honor the Lord. They gathered for their solemn assemblies. They offered their burnt and grain offerings, their peace offerings, their animal sacrifices. They sang songs in exaltation and praise to the Lord. I mean, they did all of the things that Moses taught them to do after the exodus. God says, I despise it all. It is disgusting to me. 
Brothers and sisters, I want you to get this. Don't miss what the Lord is showing us here. The reality is this. Worship goes beyond rituals and practices. It is so much more than music and songs and singing and services and gatherings and offerings and sacrifices. It is so much more than that. Worship is communing with God. It is devotion to and delighting in him above all things. This is why we often open our services, and I thank Pastor Gabe for again reminding you this morning. That is why we open our services by reminding you that worship is everything that we do. It's incorporated in every aspect of this service, and it should saturate every part of our being as God's people. Worship extends into our daily lives and how we live before holy creator God. Friends, this is so crucial. I cannot overstate this. We must have an accurate understanding of what worship actually is. You see, I think for so many people, they look at worship as some kind of performance. I mean, think about the culture that's been created, right? We'll look at particular churches and their worship bands and their uh, music uh, musicians and the performances they put on, and we'll say, man, they really know how to worship. Or, man, that was so spirit-filled, and I just love the worship at that church. But why? What causes us to say that? What makes us consider that legitimate, God-honoring worship? Well, a lot of times it's just because of the music, right? It's how loud and intense the music is, and obviously because of the musicians and their performance, there's this obvious and overwhelming energy within the room. And But it's really just an experience that leads to some sort of emotional response. Man, honestly, man, and I'm, I'm just going to keep it real with you guys, a lot of it is void of any truth, and it more so resembles pagan practices than any Christ-centered praise. I mean, and if we're being honest, can I just say that a lot of it's just silly and irreverent. And it shouldn't be brought before holy creator God. It has no business in the place where we dwell and we worship the Lord. It doesn't belong there. And before we go on, if I'm just going to be honest, man, I want to say this too. While worshiping encompasses far more than music and songs, the songs we sing do matter. It matters. Regardless of what some people say the songs we sing actually matter. And here's why. Because that's one of the ways people have their theology shaped. That's one of the ways people begin to understand who God is. Man, but the unfortunate reality is, man, some of the songs nowadays, and they contain such poor theology, very little doctrine, they're about as theologically deep as a teaspoon. It's terrible. It's not befitting God, the creator, the king of the universe. Man, but it sounds great. And it makes me feel so good. But it's just an emotionally driven experience. And therefore, we deem it to be legitimate worship because of how we felt. Friends, we cannot continue to bow at the altar of feelings. And not to say that feelings are always necessarily a terrible thing, because they're not. God's given us feelings for a reason. But we can't attach our worship to our feelings. 
Listen, I don't care how great the service is. I don't care how awesome the music was. Doesn't matter how many hands were raised or how many people walked that aisle and come down front. God takes no delight in it. It is not genuine and acceptable worship if it is not in accordance with what God demands. And what God demands in worship is obedience and holiness from his people. That's what God requires. Friends, it is crucial. It is so important that we have an appropriate understanding of what worship is. And not only do so many people look at worship as simply some musical performance, but there are those who somehow believe worship is to be me-centered. There are so many who believe worship should meet my felt needs. Like if it doesn't make me feel a certain way, if it doesn't meet the preferences I desire, if I'm not entertained by this thing, then I don't consider it worship and I don't want anything to do with it. I don't consider it suitable for worship because of how it didn't make me feel. I want my preferences and my needs met. Me, 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 me. Listen, I want to be clear on this. The purpose of worship is to exalt delight in and sing the praises of our great and glorious God. We gather here every Sunday for that purpose, to sing God's praises. Worship is to be God-centered, not man-centered. You see, the church is to conform to the image of Christ, not to conform to the preferences and desires of man. As we gather, our worship must be God-centered. And again, that goes well beyond music and services and rituals and any other external religious practices that you could name. See, God is not pleased with the offerings of the nation of Israel. In verse 21, he says, I hate, I despise your feast. See, this is God doubling down on his disdain for their vain and empty worship. He hates it. He despises it. He says, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. God finds no joy, no pleasure, no satisfaction in their gatherings. He says, even your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept. Your peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. God says he can't even look upon them. He can't stand to see them. They're so offensive. They're so disingenuous. They're despised by God. God says, take away from me the noises of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. God says, your songs, your melodies are simply noise. I will not listen to them. You ever stop and think about that? It's just noise. Some of these wonderful and incredible and spectacular and moving worship performances you you see through the gift of song, some of it's just noise. Period. It's just noise. God is not delighted in that. It brings him no pleasure and no honor. You can offer all the sacrifices, all the songs, all the prayers, all the stuff, all the things. If you're not obedient to Christ, it is noise. It is vain worship. Here's the thing. There's nothing in these texts that would suggest that the people had offered some kind of irregular worship. The text doesn't suggest that any of their practices themselves were wrong or sinful. Brothers and sisters, this is a great reminder that worship can be carried out to the letter of the law and still not be acceptable to God. 
You see, the value isn't in the quality of the music or the movement of the performance. It isn't in the size or the beauty of the building or the sanctuary. It's none of that. It isn't standing before the congregation and making these long and elaborate prayers. It's not even about how great the preaching is. All of those are good things, right? Those are part of our services. Those are good things. But it's not about that. Worship isn't about that. It is the heart of worship that matters, not the quality of our performance. That's why you can't judge the success for lack of a better word, of a church by its size or its music, right? A church with no instruments, with no choir, no large extravagant building can please God more than any mega church with all that it has to offer. And no, I'm not here to bash the mega church. That's not the point. However, I can tell you why I think it's not beneficial for the body. And that's a conversation we can have another day. That's another discussion for another time. The point is this. The nation of Israel had done all of the right things. They'd had the assemblies, all of the offerings, all of the sacrifices, all of the music, all the stuff, and yet God was not pleased with their worship. So if the ritual, the religion, isn't what God wanted, what is it that God desires of his people? And that's point number four. God desires righteousness not rituals. God desires righteousness, not rituals. Let's look at verse 24. And it says, if I can get to it, it says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Now here we find the reason for God's disdain for his people's worship. Here we have some insight into why God hated their sacrifices and their practices. You see, if you were here last week, we talked about the sin of injustice and how it had plagued the nation of Israel. They had corrupted the court system and manipulated in such a way that it favored the rich and continued to oppress the poor. So the city gate, remember we talked about that a little bit last week, was supposed to be this place where justice was administered, where people could come and have their cases tried impartially and fairly. It said it had become a place of greed and corruption. Remember back in verse 7 of chapter 5, the Lord said they had turned justice to wormwood. In verse 11, he said they had trampled on the poor. In verse 12, he says, they afflicted the righteousness and, or the righteous and took bribes, turning aside the needy. So when we get here to verse 24, and God says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, this is implying that justice and righteousness are not present amongst the nation of Israel. And this is the very reason that God hates and despises their worship. Justice and righteousness should permeate the nation of Israel. They should be saturated in these things. Like a stream that continuously flows and rushes, these attributes should be ever-present amongst God's people. However, because these things were lacking within the nation, their worship was just a ritual. There was no heart behind their sacrifices. You see, above ritual offerings and traditional sacrifices, the Lord demands our obedience, our righteousness, and our holiness. This is what God requires of those who intend to worship him. 
But the nation of Israel, God didn't want their songs. He didn't want their sacrifices. He didn't want their solemn assemblies. He wanted justice, mercy, and righteousness to be common among the people that bear his name. I want you to consider the words of Hosea. Hosea is another prophet, another one of the minor prophets, also sent by God to his people. And in chapter 6, Hosea says this as he is speaking on behalf of God. And I'm sure this is a verse all of us are familiar with. It says this, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, God didn't want their sacrifices. He doesn't want those empty offerings. God wants the heart of his people. What God requires of his people is that they love him and they love their neighbors as themselves and that they seek to know their God. See, if they had known their God, they would have known what he demanded. Love, justice, righteousness, mercy, all of these things. And this was a clear expectation amongst God's people. Now, before we move on from here, I don't want you to think this is a challenge or this is issued exclusively to the nation of Israel. In Matthew chapter 9, is Jesus is addressing the Pharisees who were constantly on his neck about everything. Why do you eat with sinners? Why do you work on the Sabbath? Why do they eat before they wash their hands? I mean, they're just constantly going after Jesus. And this is what he says to them as he firmly rebu- rebukes them. He says this. He quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 that I just read. Jesus says to them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, it would serve us well to also go and learn what that means. God desires our righteousness before he ever desires any of our rituals. What he demands is the sacrifice of obedience, that we worship him daily by the way that we live. Think about Romans 12, 1. Where Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Why? Because he says this is your spiritual worship. This is how you worship God. By being a living sacrifice. Paul says that this is our worship and this comes directly from our lives. Worship is God is not some Worship of God is not some addition in our lives. We actually worship God with our lives. I think that's why so many people reduce worship to simply music and song, because that's really easy. It's really easy to do. See, if I separate worship from obedience, if I make worship just song, I never have to change my lifestyle. I can always just live however I want, because my worship is exclusive to me coming in here on Sundays, raising my hand, singing some songs. I never have to change the way that I live. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that if you, if we genuinely want to worship God, then that must encompass the way that we live. Our desire to worship him must impact every aspect of our lives, who we are, what we say, what we do. It is only the life of obedience that can produce acceptable worship to God. Listen, if we want to offer that which is pleasing to God, listen to this. It must begin with a devotion to him and to his commands. 
Let me say that again. If you truly want to offer that which is pleasing to God, it must begin with a devotion to him and to his commands. Amen? Amen. You see, Israel had denied justice. They'd lived in unrighteousness. Because of this, their worship, rather than presenting a pleasing aroma to God, it was offensive. It reeked. It stunk to the high heavens, and God found no delight in it. Listen, if you're coming here every single Sunday and offering your praise and your exaltation to God, man, that's wonderful. We should do that because God's worthy. We should do that. But you can come in here every week. You can sit under the teaching of the Word. You can sing all of these songs. You can do all of these things. But how do you live Sunday to Sunday? Are you pursuing holiness in your thoughts and the things that you put in front of you? Are you actively turning from sin? How do you treat your spouse? How do you treat your children? How do you love your neighbor? Are you denying justice? Are you living in uh, unrighteousness? Again, if you restrict your worship just to coming in here for an hour and a half on Sunday, and then you neglect to worship God the way that you live, you are offering false and unacceptable worship to God. It can't be divorced from your obedience Sunday to Sunday. And this is where we must examine our own lives. We must hold them against the backdrop of the scriptures and ask, am I living in accordance to God's word? Am I worshiping him with my life? Because this is what he demands. This is what legitimate worship entails, a life of submission and obedience to the Lord's will. We had that modeled for us in the greatest fashion in Christ Jesus. See, pleasing and acceptable worship Jesus Christ has demonstrated for us. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us, loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus did it the right way. He showed us what it looks like. Shows us what God, what God demands of us, that we would be imitators of him, that we would be like God. And when I say like God, I mean we just imitate his attributes, the ones that we are capable of imitating, like love, like compassion, like forgiveness, like mercy, like grace, like all of these things. Acceptable worship to God looks like us imitating the example that Jesus set for us. See, for the nation of Israel, they were so far from that. There was no justice, no righteousness. It was absent from the nation of Israel. They were approaching God and presenting him with these offerings, but God would not accept them, for their hearts were so far from him. Their conduct did not meet the Lord's standard. Therefore, their worship was displeasing to him. It was vain. The judgment of God was rightly aimed at them and would eventually lead to their exile, which leads me to my final point. Idol worship separates us from God's presence. Idol worship separates us from God's presence. Let's read verses 25 through 27. God says, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Kian, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of 
hosts. So the Lord begins here by asking a rhetorical question of his people. Here in verse 25, he says, Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Now this may seem like a confusing question given the history of Israel, right? As we read through the Exodus and Leviticus and and the story of God's people, didn't they offer worship to God in the wilderness? Don't we have accounts of them offering sacrifices and doing all of these things as they offered to God, right? Well, I don't want you to miss what God is asking them here. He says, did you bring to me? Did you bring to me? God doesn't say they didn't offer any sacrifices, but he says, did you not offer unto me? And here's what God is essentially saying. Or here's what I want to essentially say that God is saying to us here. If he is not served and worshiped wholly and alone, he is not served and worshiped at all. So Israel's issue was they offered sacrifices to God, but they also offered these sacrifices to these idols. So these two idols, Sikath and Kenyon, that are mentioned, it is believed that they actually carried them out of Egypt with them, that through the years in the wilderness, they worshiped these star gods. So Sikath and Kenyon, for a little bit of reference there, uh, Mesopotamian gods, they're gods that are related to the planet Saturn, right? And some of Israel's neighbors, they worship these stars. We talked about that a little bit last week. So it's believed that these are gods that they took with them through the wilderness. So yes, they offered some sacrifice to God, but they also had their idols that they had carved and carried with them and worshiped. And God says, you can't worship me and them. You cannot do both. You cannot do both. See, they mocked God with their worship while at the same time worshiping idols. Because of this, God would banish them from his presence. You see, they desired those idols. Well, God said, I'm going to abandon you to them. And what can they do for you? What can something made with human hands do that Lord our God cannot? You want these idols? Have them. Carry them with you into exile. See, this is a great reminder as we compare God to some of these idols. This is a great reminder to us that it is God that is all-powerful, almighty, and sovereign over all things. He is the one that banishes them and destines them for exile and judgment. Those idols, those carved images, they can't do anything. They have no power. They are useless. They could not stop the hand of God. They are empty. They mean Nothing. It is only God who has all power in his hands. That is why we worship him. I want you to just stop for a minute and we can make a simple application here. What are the idols in your life? What are the idols in our own lives? And as we gather them together and we grasp at them and we put them all in front of us, what are they compared to almighty God? Nothing. They can do nothing. They serve us no good. As we close our time, we get to verse 27. God says, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord. So what will happen is God would banish his people from his presence, promising that they would be exiled into a foreign land, no longer within the safety of their promised land in this covenant community. 
And that prophecy, of course, would come to fruition some 40 years later as the Assyrian army would come and conquer Israel and take that remnant, those who were spared, would go into exile, into captivity by the Assyrian army. They would be slaves. They would be captured. They would be ruled. This was part of God's judgment on them. See, their worship didn't lead to God's blessing. It led to their exile, being dismissed from God's presence. See, as we close our time, maybe you're sitting in here this morning, you're thinking to yourself, man, that is not exciting to me. That is a devastating text. What we talked about this morning isn't very uplifting, Pastor Brandon. And you're right. If the story ends right there, it's not great. But praise God for his restoration, for his redemption. That restoration would come to God's people. And the reality is restoration and redemption is available to you today. You see, as we read through these verses and we begin to unfold the story of Israel, our knee-jerk reaction is often to indict the Lord's people. I know I do it all the time. I want to chastise them for their constant sin and rebellion, but the reality is I am no different than they are. Apart from God's grace and the regenerating work of his Holy Spirit, I continue to wander and stray and rebel over and over and over again as well. We all turn into these other things. We know what God demands, but we often choose to seek him our own way. That's unacceptable to God. Can't get to him our way. We must come before him his way. So how do we seek God? How do we come to him? How do we approach God the Father? Well, the Bible tells us it begins with worshiping God the Son, surrendering to Christ. It's the only way. And I know for some people in here, that's probably offensive. The exclusivity of Jesus, the narrow way. Don't all roads lead to heaven? Aren't all religions worshiping the same God? Unfortunately, no. God's word clearly tells us that we can only get to the Father through the Son. It is through Christ Jesus that we offer appropriate worship to God. Listen, you can't get right with God through your religion, through your practices, through your customs and tradition. Listen, God's standard is perfection. And that is a standard none of us could ever meet. I don't care how much singing you do. I don't care how many church services you go to, how much you pray, how much you read your Bible, how much you put in the offering plate. Again, those are all great things, but none of that will save you. None of that puts you in right standing before Creator God. You said that God demands righteousness, but here's the reality. We have no righteousness in us. We have no righteousness of our own, but thank God for the righteousness of Jesus Christ and how it's been imputed to us, those that are believers, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. And we praise God for the perfect, spotless obedience of Christ the Son, and how that's been attributed to us. And what a glorious demonstration of God's grace. This is why we worship God. This is why we can stand on the day of the Lord with confidence as we stand before God, confident in our judgment that awaits us, 
Because Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We can stand on the Lord's day confidently because of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That is why we sing the praises of the Lord. That is why we gather each week to give him the praise and honor that he is due. Listen, that may not be your reality this morning. As I address, as I say those things, I'm addressing that to believers. That safety, that security, that assurance is found only for those that are in Christ Jesus. So if that's not your reality this morning, then that wrath, that judgment is still aimed in your direction. And I don't say that to scare you. It's just a reality. It's a reality. But Maybe you're here this morning and God's doing something in your heart. Maybe he's stirring you to to respond. I pray that he is. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you want to know, okay, well, how can I worship Christ the Son? How can I get in this right relationship with God? Man, before you leave today, find someone. One of our members, find myself, Pastor Gabe. We'd be more than happy to talk to you about what that looks like, how to surrender your life to Christ, what it looks like to follow him in obedience. Listen, as we close our time here today. I just want to end by reading Hebrews 12, 28. We've had this discussion today about appropriate worship, acceptable worship, what it looks like. Let's read. I want to read Hebrews 12, 28, and this is what it says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That is a reminder of the posture of our hearts as we come before God. It should be with great reverence and awe that God is to be respected, to be revered, to be honored as we approach him. As we close, I would just again like to issue the challenge to each of us to consider the way that we're coming before the Lord every week, every day, every moment. Are we honoring him by exercising humble obedience to his word? Does worship permeate, does worship saturate our lives Sunday to Sunday? Or is it simply an act? Is it just this ritual that you put on on Sunday mornings out of obligation? I want you to consider what God is asking of you based on these verses. Then my encouragement is for those, if we're at a place where we say, yes, I I must repent. And I haven't been obedient. I haven't lived according to God's word. I know my worship hasn't been acceptable. My challenge is to repent and then to look to Christ for he is sufficient. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for this opportunity that we've had, God, to Open your word together, God. We are so blessed, so fortunate to be able to read your word whenever we desire. God, I pray that with the time we've had here together, God, that you've done the work that only you can do, that your Holy Spirit would move in the hearts of those who haven't come to know Christ Jesus, those who need to repent, those who need to examine their own lives, and they would turn to you. Father, as we go about this day and our days until we gather together again, God, we would be focused on remembering that each and every day, every moment we have, every opportunity is a moment to worship you. And we do that in our daily lives through obedience to you, Christ Jesus. 
So, Father, I pray that the rest of the day and, and for the days and weeks to come, we would keep that in mind. We would keep that as our focus, and we would seek to honor and worship you in a way that is acceptable to you, that is glorifying to you, Creator God. Father, thank you for this time. Pray that you are honored in it. We are challenged and encouraged and changed by it. And it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.